Check, 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 check. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to In Killing Color. This is episode number 39, and today we're going to talk about the untimely death of James Jordan. Uh, Maybe some of y'all know who that is, maybe some of y'all don't. But what happened to him was actually really fucked up. And we're going to talk about that today. So get yourself together and get ready. Let's get to it. These are their stories. In 1993, Michael Jordan was like the basketball NBA god. Everybody knows that. He had just won three straight NBA championships, and he was on the Dream Team, and they had actually just won a gold medal as well. There was, like, he was just that guy, and he still is that guy. Let's put it that way. Let's not be funny. But he did have a best friend and a really close confidant, and that was his dad, James. So let's get to a little bit of background about James and where he came from and stuff like that, just because it's available this time. Sometimes that information is not really available. So let's get into that a little bit. So James Raymond Jordan was born in Wallace, North Carolina on July 31st of 1936. He went to Charity High School and at that high school, he met his wife, Dolores. Everybody knows about Michael's beloved mama, Dolores. They started dating and they stayed together for about three years. And then once they graduated from high school, James went to the Air Force and he was stationed in San Antonio. So in 1956, he transferred to a base in Virginia and then him and Dolores got married. And then right after that, they had their first kid, which is James Ronnie Jr. After that, Jordan then left the Air Force and he got a job at a textile mill in Wallace. And then they went on to have two more kids, another daughter named Dolores, because mom was named Dolores, why not name him Dolores too? And they had a son named Larry also. So in 1963, they felt like they needed a little ramp up in their life, whatever. So they decided to leave their three kids with James's mom and they moved to New York. They moved to Brooklyn to be more specific. He went up there on his GI Bill to get some mechanic training so he could go into mechanics, which at the time, why not? He studied airplane hydraulics and Dolores, the mom, she found some work at a bank. So while they were living in Brooklyn, This is where they conceived and birthed the superstar, Michael James Jordan. So as in anywhere, crime began to increase a lot in Brooklyn in the 60s. So they was like, child, we're not staying here. So after that, they got up, packed their stuff, got their kids and moved back to North Carolina. And they moved to Wilmington. And that's when they had their fifth child, a little girl named Rosalind. Now, James was like just the uber basketball fan. He loved basketball, but he also really loved baseball. So once, you know, Michael decided to get into basketball, he was like, you should probably play baseball too. And everybody knows how that went with Michael with baseball, but basketball was Michael's thing. So he ended up going to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Tar Heels, of course, and then to the NBA, but we're not talking about, we're not here to talk about Jordan. 
So life was going on very well. James was traveling with his son, going to his games, just reaping the benefits of being the dad of the best NBA player in the actual world at that time and still kind of is named such. So let's fast forward to July 23rd of 1993. That was when everything changed for James, of course, and the entire Jordan family. So he was coming home. He went to play golf in Lumberton, North Carolina, and he was driving on the highway and he was really kind of tired. So he decided to pull over into a parking lot of a quality inn at the intersection of US 74 and 95 South, which was in Lumberton, North Carolina. And he was just trying to catch him a nap. And this is where, you know, everything took a turn for the worse. Two men, and by men, I mean teenagers, they were 17 and 16 respectively. Larry Martin Demery and Daniel Andre Green spotted Mr. James's car. Now, if everybody remembers this case or if they don't, Michael had bought his dad this really, really, really dope two-door cherry red Lexus and the plate on the back said UNC 0023. So, I mean, everybody probably wouldn't have known whose car that was, but I mean, you out for the come up, you see a car parked somewhere and don't even technically don't see anybody in there and it's a beautiful red Lexus. What would you think? Yup, we're going to get that. So then they crept up alongside of the car to see if anybody was in there and they looked in the window and they saw James sleeping. According to most case files, they say that Green shot James while he was asleep, put him in the back, stole the car, took the car to the bridge, took James' body and threw his body off the side of the bridge. They took the car, sped off carried on thinking yeah we hit the biggest lick we did that and that was that right so later that next day Dolores knew that James should have been back by now and she was starting to get a little bit worried because hey it's not that far Lumberton and Wilmington is not that far so he should have been able to get home by that time but he was not home that one night turned into three weeks three weeks he was missing and something that bothered me with this case Nobody ever mentioned why they never filed a missing persons report when that man was missing for three full weeks. I don't, I don't get that because I'm giving three hours and I'm checking arrest records. It's giving three hours. I'm calling the hospital. Where is my husband? Okay. Where is my man? So three weeks later, on August the 3rd, there was a body found in a swamp in McCall, South Carolina which is 41 miles away from Lumberton where he was initially shot. The body of course had been in water because it was dumped off a bridge. So it was really, really, really badly decomposed. And because he didn't have any identification or nobody had filed a missing persons report or it was just nobody available. And according to the coroner, there was really no space at the morgue. They saved his jawbone so they can have dental records just in case. And they went ahead and took it upon themselves to cremate James, unbeknownst to anybody because nobody knew where he was anyway. So his body wasn't technically identified until August the 13th because they sent the dental records off. And at that time they were trying to get like, okay, well, maybe we need to figure this out. So the dental records provided the fact that, hey, this was your dad 
this is where we found him. This is what happened. And I definitely, <clears throat> that definitely makes me feel some type of way because it's like, you know, your dad was missing for three weeks and all you do is get a call like, hey, guess what? We uh, found your dad's body, but we don't have it anymore because it's cremated. So you can come get this box. This is where your dad is. Sorry about your luck. That's trifling as hell. Now, the whole time the family is going through this, trying to figure out where the dad is, trying to get into what really happened. The two teenagers who actually robbed him started going through the car. And the further they got into the car and looking at the stuff, they realized, oh, shit, this is Michael Jordan's dad. So in the car, there was a couple of things that led them to that discovery. There was two NBA championship rings that Jordan had gave his dad and a cell phone and a couple other things. So, of course, teenagers like some big dummies, they took the phone and made some phone calls. And that, my dear, is where they totally fucked up because once they made those calls, police tracked the phone, tracked the phone number, bop, bop, bop. Y'all was caught. Y'all was arrested. Now, during the trial, two of the guys, the two guys, one of them actually testified, which was um, Demery. And he, they, they say that race doesn't play a huge part in this, but I'm just going to mention it. Demery was Native American and green was a black man okay so Demery testified green did not he didn't want to he didn't say anything so he was just gonna say he was gonna take whatever he got because they was caught regardless so he was like shit I ain't gonna say nothing like we caught anyway fuck it I don't got nothing to say so anyway as the story goes both of them got life in prison both of them and that's that James was buried at Rockfish AME Church in Teachy, North Carolina on August the 15th of 1993. Now we're going to fast forward because this whole time we never really had any like details about what happened or anything like that because there were so many conspiracy theories going on at the time about why this actually happened. People thought that, okay, maybe it was just a robbery gone bad. Some people said that it was due to Michael Jordan's gambling problem because they said that he it was no secret that Michael Jordan gambled, but he gambled a lot. And they said he owed some people some money. Not sure how Michael Jordan owes people some money because he was the highest paid man ever. But they said that maybe some of it had something to do with that. Now, you can only take certain sides of the story because only one person actually gave their side of the story. And that was Larry Demery. So in 2022, he did a phone interview with this podcast called what it was like and what he did was gave a blow by blow informational deep 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 dive into what actually happened the night that James Jordan was killed and the events that led up to that so I got some I got the transcripts from that so I'm just going to read some of this most of this to you because I'm not going to get any more detail than this information right here okay so this remember this is all coming from Larry Demery, the Native American guy. So he says, <clears throat> I remember the first time I met Daniel. I met him in the third grade. We were playing Frisbee. Me and him became best friends. We started fishing and hunting. Um, we swam a lot, did all these things. So by the time we were 15, Daniel got into a fight with somebody and he went to prison. Uh, not prison at 15, child, for fighting. What he did? I don't even know what he did, but he went to jail. 
So he went to prison at 15. And then he says when he got out, something had changed in him. And he was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Like they said that Daniel was just a different person. Larry said the day that he got out, we went back to my parents' house. We were like sitting out in the yard and Daniel just kept saying, I got to do something, man. I got to figure out what to do. And Larry said, well, I mean, what do you want to do? And he thinks that was the moment that it just, everything changed and everything just went downhill from there. She, Larry said that he was talking about robbery. So Daniel had got a pistol from his mom and they committed a robbery at a store. And then that night they just was going on a crime spree, like, fuck it. We outside, outside boys, we going to rob some shit up. So he says, on the night that we crossed paths with Michael Jordan's dad, we had already robbed a convenience store and a couple outside of a motel. Now there's a bunch of motels right on Highway 95. So we were hanging out outside, creeping around, looking for people to, to rob basically. So it wasn't much happening. So then they finished robbing somebody there and they looked throughout the parking lot and saw the car. And Daniel was like, hey, oh, you know what? That's a Lexus, that's a nice car. And at the time, Larry says he didn't know what a Lexus was because it had only been out for like a year or two, which is correct. So that's why I'm sure that car was flashy because still to this day, that car is a really dope car. It like, it's dope. I'm gonna post a picture of it on my page so you can see it, but it's a dope car. I would still drive that to this day because it's really cute. Um, so they decided to go check out the car. He said that there in the front seat, we found a guy asleep. He was laying there with gold rings on all of his fingers and he had a gold watch. We actually thought the guy was a dope dealer to be in a car like that, still sitting beside the road. So we just walked by a couple of times, scoped it out. He didn't do anything, he didn't move. So they're like, maybe he sleeps. So we just decided to rob the guy. The plan was just to drive him down the road and put him out and then drive off with the stuff. But that's not what happened. He, um, Larry said that there was only one pistol Daniel had that gun because according to some news reports, both of them had guns, but Larry says that Daniel was the only one who had the gun. He said that Daniel, excuse me, Daniel tried to hand it to him and he was like, no, 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 no. He said that he's not trying to make himself seem like an innocent person because he was there and he was down with whatever he was about to do. But the fact of the matter is nobody was supposed to have gotten hurt. He says that the man was laying there asleep. He said, I remember he took it opened the door and then there was a shot and that was it just one shot while the man lay there asleep he said that when he was hit he just moved around a little bit made a noise like a noise like he was moaning and then he sat up real quick he said there was a moment he sat up he laid back down and that was it and he just stopped moving forever and he says he remembers Daniel saying hey help me move him I can't move him by myself because since they had to reach in the car to pull him out from the driver's side to the passenger side so we, they could get behind the wheel, he said that Daniel got in the car, he got in the back, and they drove off. Like, you just gonna drive off with a dead man in the car? Like, y'all was really pressed, like really pressed to rob somebody if y'all doing all that, like big press. I, hey, it's whatever, I don't know. He said they took off down the road, and then once they're away from the crime scene, they pulled off to a cornfield to kind of search through the car and go through the car and check it out. So Daniel started going through the car, checking the man's pockets, taking his shoes off, doing all this stuff, like, like a real robbery ass dude. Like, like you really out here robbing people. So they went into the trunk. He said he found a couple golf bags, but that was nothing unusual. 
But then Daniel calls out, man, I think we got Michael Jordan's dad here. I was like, what are you talking about? He held up the driver's license and said, look, and he read the name James R. Jordan. Of course, everybody from North Carolina knew who Michael was, but James R. didn't at the time. Larry said it didn't mean anything to him. So they just kept going through the car. He says they took the man's watch off and on the back of the watch, it had an engraving that said to dad from Michael and Juanita. Now, Larry says, I don't know why, but I knew that Michael Jordan's wife's name was Juanita. And that's when everything fell into place for him. Suddenly, he noticed a set of golf clubs in the trunk had all Chicago Bull like insignia on them that was like red and black. And Larry says, I was tripping out, especially because there was a dead man and a dead body right there in the car. And I had never been that close to a dead person. Then there was the fact that we were responsible for taking his life. From there, he says, they drove down the Pea Bridge Road and it was right on the borderline of North and South Carolina. And that's where they dropped him off the bridge. Larry said he remembered a tussle and the struggle of both of us trying to get him out the car because remember, this is an actual grown-up man and these are some children. He says, then I remember hearing him hit the water and that was it. Can you imagine being so like depraved in life that you know this is Michael Jordan's dad, you know that you've just killed him and you take that man's body and like throw it off the side of the fucking bridge? Like, I just... Like, as a teenager, I couldn't even imagine that. But also, I wasn't living the same type of life they was at 17. At 17, I was running track, okay? I was in a band. I was preparing to go to college. I was not out here like, I'm about to rob some shit up. That wasn't me. But obviously, that was them, okay? So Larry says that later, he found out that he had floated down the river and got hung up on a limb hanging out of the water. And that's how his body was found by a local man that had was going fishing. So... He says later that night, they went back to Daniel's house and he says he remembered laying down on the couch and it might have been a couple of hours. And then he woke up and he saw that Daniel wasn't in the trailer. He says, I looked out the window and I could see the car and I saw Daniel kicking in the back seat, like with his foot out the window, talking on the phone like a big dummy. Now, Larry says, from my understanding of things, the police can pretty much pinpoint where you are from a single phone call. So that moment, that's when he knew that y'all was screwed like police will be here any minute so it was three weeks so three weeks later he says the case was on the front of the local paper said james jordan missing because at this point he was still missing because nobody knew that he wasn't alive he says the very next day after that paper came out that's when the police came to see him he said that it might have sounded strange but in a sense it was a relief when they came to get me not that i wanted to get locked up and arrested but all those weeks going around not being able to talk to anybody about it, just the anticipation of waiting to get the door kicked in probably was very stressful. And guess what? Rightfully so. Rightfully damn so, okay? He said Daniel was picked up first at about 6.30 that evening, and they came to get him around 11 o'clock that night. He said he could see them coming because they lived like in the country, so you could see them driving down the dirt road. He said at this point he lost count at about 25 cops. He said, I took off, ran out the house, hit the woods, but they still caught me. Of course they did. <laughs> of course they did. So at the time, Larry says, I was 17. He said, I'm 46 now. On August the 15th, it will be exactly 29 years that I've been incarcerated. Sometimes it's hard to believe I've been in prison 29 years. But other times, like when I see my little girl who wasn't born yet, we're going to pause right there. Little girl that wasn't born yet. 
Not you being 17, knocking somebody up and committing robbery and fraud. <laughs> Child, you was living a life. <laughs> you was living a life. You got a 29-year-old daughter. She don't know nothing about you. You weren't there for not a second of her life. A second. Now, here's the part that's like weird to me. That's like stupid. He says, I've never heard from Michael Jordan or anyone in his family. But if he ever reads this or hears this show, I just want to say I'm sorry. I know there are no words that can make up for this loss. At that time, at that age, I just thought I knew what I was doing, but I really didn't. What we did was horrible. It really was. I hate that I invaded anybody's life like I did and all the other people's lives that I affected. My own family, Daniel's family, we're all victims in some sense too. But at least I've still had her with me. And when he says her, he's talking about his mom. Because I know my mom has been dealing with me with this the whole way. Now, when I think about Michael Jordan, my mom can see me, but Michael can't see his dad. Now, I know you gained some clarity after being locked up for 29 years. But the audacity for you to think that Michael Jordan is going to say anything to you? Why the fuck would you hear from Michael Jordan or his family? You killed his dad. You're not going to hear shit from him ever, ever, <laughs> like ever. He probably don't even read no articles. Don't do none. Michael ain't worried about that shit. He got bigger fish to fry because your ass is gone. Okay. He don't care nothing about that. So <clears throat> the weird part, Larry has a parole hearing in December of 2023. Now, he says in his hopes that he's going to get out because he says that he didn't do nothing. He says he's not the one that shot somebody. He didn't do anything. He was just an accomplice. He says that if he gets out, his main goal of once he's out is to restore the relationships and build all the relationships he didn't have over these past 29 years. He has a little girl and the little girl wants him to be a part of her life. He says he has five grandsons and he needs to get to them. The oldest one is 11. Now, the oldest one's dad is in prison for murder, just like me. So the likelihood of him going down that road is a cycle that will keep on going. So I'm trying to get out and break that cycle. Maybe I can do some good. <sighs> sir, you're not going to. This might be really like negative of me, but sir, you're not going to be able to teach them kids nothing. You're a murderer. His dad's a murderer. It's giving genetic murder. I hope this little boy does not go down the same path as you. But the likelihood of it is really fucking high at this point, which is very sad. Now, throughout all of these things, Daniel Green has not said a damn word. Daniel ain't said nothing. He said nothing because Daniel said, I don't have nothing to say. Now, the way that Larry thinks that he's going to get off is because Larry got a new lawyer. And this lawyer says that he basically admitted that Demry, I mean, that um, Green was the one that did everything. Like, Larry, Larry didn't do anything. So he's been in jail for 29 years for a murder that technically he didn't commit. He was, guess, I guess, an accessory or something. But the fact of the matter is, you were there when supposedly Daniel Green shot and killed James Jordan. His new counsel 
that he got in 2016 says there's tons and tons of red flags in this case. And they feel like Larry Demery was railroaded. They feel like he got an unfair trial. He just got the same thing that Daniel Green got because Green didn't say nothing. So they just gave him this. But the whole time, Larry was like, I, um, he just maintained the fact that he didn't do anything. He says that Green and Demery had ineffective counsel and they tried to, the lawyers themselves were trying to be forensics and ballistic experts, but they really never had an actual forensic expert or a ballistic expert during the trial. They said the alibis of the witnesses weren't thoroughly investigated. They just said that the whole case was flawed from the beginning. I understand that, but at the end of the day, Michael and his family don't give a rat's ass. All they know is that y'all two ran up on his dad thinking he was going to get a come up, shot him, threw his body off a bridge. And at that point, that's all they needed to hear. Y'all did that to a man that was just trying to take a nap because he was tired because y'all was on a robbery street and y'all didn't have shit else to do that day. You got what you deserved, And that's it for y'all. That's it. Nobody has any sympathy for you. Nobody gives a shit that you've never seen your daughter. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Quote big letters, bold print. Nobody cares, Larry. <laughs> Nobody. And I can't even say nothing to Daniel because Daniel said, I ain't got shit to say. And he ain't said shit these last 29 years. I remember when I was little, when this case came out, I remember I was at my grandma's house who kind of lives kind of out that way by where um, Lumberton and stuff is. And we were all talking about that. And I was like, dang, they killed Michael Jordan's daddy. That's messed up. Like, you know, like I, I ain't know Michael Jordan, but I still felt bad because it's like, dang, that's somebody daddy. Like y'all did that man like that. You thinking like, oh, it's Michael Jordan's daddy. He should get a break in life. No, he don't get a break in life from these type of things either. Murder don't have nobody's name on it, especially not a random one like that. And that's terrible. That's awful. When you think about it, like that makes me sad. Like, I don't like that. But what I don't like is them trying to go back into this case 29 years later, trying to rehash it, trying to get this man out of jail. You can just stay in there. You can stay. It's fine. We don't, you're not going to do anything when you get out of jail anyway. What you going to do? You don't have no life skills. You didn't graduate from high school. What are you doing? What are you doing? I don't know, y'all. But that is the case of James Jordan. A lot of people didn't know about that because a lot of people weren't born around that time. But my audience probably is. Because my audience is a 35 to 45 year old audience. So y'all probably know this story too. But I do appreciate y'all tuning in and listening to me rant and rave like I do every week. Make sure y'all follow me on all social media. Thread included. <laughs> now that we have that. Everything. At Inkillin Color everywhere. I have merchandise you can get. Which is on Dystopia and Redbubble. Links are in the story notes. I'm going to put the link to the um, interview at the bottom. Just in case you want to read that too on your own. It's going to say the same thing I did. But you can listen to it anyway. And... Uh, Make sure y'all interact with me because I like to talk. I like to chat. I like to do things. I go live after I record every show, so I'll be on there in a few. All right? I will talk to y'all next time. Bye.